Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. New Haven has received national attention after a city man was arrested and injured while in police custody. 36-year-old Richard Randy Cox remains hospitalized and is paralyzed from the neck down, according to his family and attorneys. National civil rights attorney Ben Crump criticized the actions of the New Haven Police Department on Tuesday during a press conference. I am here because when I look at that video, it shocks my conscience. And I believe when you all see the video, it's going to shock your conscience. The only question is, why wouldn't the police look at Randy Cox saying, I can't move? Why doesn't it shock their conscience? Why when he said, I can't move my arms, I can't move, that they didn't use their training? They didn't use their professionalism. They didn't use the policies that they all supposed to know. Why didn't they use just an ounce, just an ounce of humanity? That audio is from Connecticut Public's Kay Perkins. Now video of Cox's arrest and how New Haven officers interacted with him that day is on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Five New Haven police officers have been put on paid administrative leave while the state police investigate. Coming up where we live, we hear from New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker and the city's assistant police chief, Carl Rob Carl Jacobson, rather. He's the mayor's nominee to become chief. First, Tom Breen joins us, the managing editor of the New Haven Independent. He and his colleagues have been covering this story in depth. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Lucy. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I, I, I mentioned Richard Randy Cox. Uh, tell us what happened that day. How did he get injured, Tom? I'd be happy to. And I, I would love to just begin by repeating how you all began this segment, which is to repeat that a man named Richard Randy Cox is currently hospitalized and paralyzed after suffering serious injuries to his neck and spine while in police custody. State police are investigating. City police will conduct their own investigation. This matter will likely be litigated in criminal and civil court. Um, that'll reveal a lot about how police officers responded in the situation. But first and foremost, a very real man is very seriously hurt and his and his family's life will likely never be the same because of it. So how how did this happen on the evening of Sunday, June 19th, city police arrested a 36-year-old New Haven man named Richard Randy Cox on a few weapons charges at a block party in the New Hallville neighborhood of New Haven. After being taken into custody without incident, officers ultimately placed him in the back of a police prisoner transport van to bring him to the the detention center at police headquarters downtown. That van did not have seat belts. Mr. Cox's hands were cuffed behind his back and several blocks into the ride, the officer driving the van stopped abruptly 
after speeding or appearing to speed to avoid a car crash. That abrupt stop sent Mr. Cox flying headfirst into the front wall of the van, uh, where he appears to have suffered some pretty severe injuries to his neck and spine. The officer driving the van stopped several blocks later to check on the condition of Mr. Cox. Uh, the officer then called for an ambulance, but instead of following department protocol and waiting for an ambulance and medical crew to come treat the injured passenger on site, the officer continued driving to the detention center about another mile, where the officers and supervisor at the detention center pulled Mr. Cox's crumpled body out of the back of the van, put him in a wheelchair, processed him while he was in a wheelchair, um, said that he, when Mr. Cox protested and said that he couldn't move, that he thought he broke his neck, uh, the officers and sergeant there said that he was just drunk, that he wasn't trying hard enough, and they ultimately dragged his limp body into a, a cell where they cuffed his ankles and closed the door in that detention cells where an, an ambulance crew ultimately assessed him and then brought him to the hospital for surgery. He subsequently had two surgeries on his neck. Uh, he's going to have another surgery on his back, according to his local lawyer, uh, and he remains uh, paralyzed from the chest down except he can move one of his hands a little bit, is my understanding. And Tom, we know all of this because uh, the video uh, that's been released uh, by the city, it's a video inside that police transport van where Mr. Cox was seated. There's uh, cameras that the police wear. And so when you watch all of this, you know there, there are many moments that are very disturbing, uh, especially when you hear Mr. Cox say that he think he broke his neck, that he can't move and the way the police officers interacted with him. Yeah, it, they, it is an incredibly difficult video to watch. Uh, so ben, ben Crump, who's a nationally prominent civil rights attorney and personal injury lawyer, who's best known for his representation of the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Trayvon Martin, um, he held a, a kind of town hall or community conversation with the NAACP a few days ago, in which he kind of previewed the argument he might make in court in a a civil case about the injuries sustained by Mr. Cox. And he said again and again during that meeting, the the importance of, of watching that video, of making sure that everyone who is interested in this case, that everyone who cares about how the police treat detainees watch this video. And I know you'll be talking to the mayor and assistant police chief in a few minutes. Um, the administration released over two hours of police body cam footage and footage from inside the van um, within two days of this incident taking place. And that video shows a lot. It shows the injury sustained by Mr. Cox after the abrupt stop of the van. Um, it shows the officer who drove the van checking in on Mr. Cox and calling an ambulance, but then continuing to drive to the detention center. And then some of the most painful and difficult to watch uh, material in that footage is how Mr. Cox is treated at the detention center by the officers who believe that he's just drunk or that, he, yeah, that he's not trying hard enough to move, the officers who pull his clearly injured body out of the van into a wheelchair, drag him into a cell. It's very, very difficult to watch, um, but also essential to understand exactly how high the stakes are and what exactly is being debated here. 
You're hearing Tom Breen here on Where We Live. He's managing editor of the New Haven Independent as we talk about this case uh, where, again, uh, a city man remains hospitalized, his family says almost entirely paralyzed after what transpired after an arrest uh, and the involvement of the New Haven police. You can join us, especially if you're a New Haven resident. We'll be speaking with the mayor and the assistant police chief. Our number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, a few times you've mentioned that police believe he was intoxicated based on some of the comments that were made to Mr. Cox. But tell us how that would relate to a policy that officers would follow when interacting with someone they believe is intoxicated, Tom. Yeah, the, so the the body cam footage from the officers who initially arrested Mr. Cox at the block party in New Hallville, that body cam footage shows that at the time that he was detained, uh, that he was holding some kind of some bottle of of alcohol. Um, And I I believe that that's one of the the biggest reasons why officers believe that he was intoxicated at the time. The video inside the transport van also shows before the abrupt stop shows Mr. Cox kind of lying on the floor of the van, kicking against the wall before he sits up on the bench, the kind of seatbeltless bench uh, in the van and then goes flying forward and injures himself. Uh, Now, the Department protocol requires officers to seek out immediate medical assistance when an, when a, a prisoner being transported sustains a, a serious injury. Uh, and the officer, again, the officer who was driving the van here called for an ambulance after checking on Mr. Cox mid-route, but then instead of waiting for an ambulance to come on site, he ordered the ambulance to meet them at the detention center and he continued driving to the detention center. That officer, informed, again, according to all the body cam footage released by the police department and the mayor's office, uh, the body cam footage shows that the officer who was driving the van, when he arrives at the detention center, he lets at least the supervisor know that the man says he fell, that he says he injured himself. Uh, but then upon opening of the doors, the supervisor and the officers at the detention center uh, treat him frankly, as if he's just not telling the truth, as if he's just kind of faking it, as if he just doesn't want to move, as if, to quote one of the officers, he's not trying hard enough to move. Um, This goes, I think, counter to all kind of prevailing medical opinion, which is that if someone is seriously injured, especially to their neck or spine, the most important thing is to not move them until they're able to get medical treatment. Um, But also in department, New Haven Police Department protocol, if someone is that injured, the officers are required to to call for for medical help to have a medical team address the situation first before they proceed with you know processing him and throwing him in a cell or dragging him in a cell again you can see uh, parts of that uh, video that was released by city officials at our website ctpublic.org/where we live you know the inside of these police transport vans uh, to describe it for listeners it looked like it was all metal and as you mentioned tom no seatbelt And so when we think about just, you know, safety in the terms of when you're driving around to not be seatbelted and you're on a surface where you can easily slide when there is an abrupt stop to understand how this happened. Yeah, I think that's one of the more shocking elements of all of this for for people trying to understand what happened is that, you know, in 2022, people who are hand, you know, handcuffed and detained and put in the, you know, a metal box are not are not uh, required to and could not even be buckled into a seatbelt in this van because there were no seatbelts. There were loops on the wall of the van that 
that prisoners are instructed to hold on to with their cuff, with their hands cuffed behind their backs. Um, but this is, I mean, th this is seven years after Freddie Gray's fatal, you know, quote unquote, rough ride in Baltimore, a different situation where I, I believe that there were seatbelts in that van and he was unsecured. But here we have seven years later, a man in New Haven put in the back of a seatbeltless box and then because of, uh, you know, an apparent attempt to avoid a car crash, he suffers a very serious injury and um, and now is hospitalized and paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Something else that you had said, you know, medical protocol, if someone is suspected of having a neck injury, to not move them. I think most people listening right now know that, whether it's personal experience or watching sports, they understand you don't move someone. And the fact that he was moved, he was dragged, he was picked yeah. up and dragged again. Yeah, you know, this this gets at I think some of the more uh, kind of biting critiques that again attorney Crump and the local attorneys who are representing Mr. Cox, Mr. Cox's family, and other civil rights advocates locally have have said, which is that the clear disregard for Mr. Cox's. Um, but apparent state of distress, a very visible state of distress and protestations that he could not move, that disregard uh, reflects something very wrong with how the police department treats people, treats young black people. A lot of the family members and attorneys have said that there is an assumption that when you are arrested and arrive at the detention center, that because of whatever charges you may be facing or just the situation that you're in, uh, that you must not be telling the truth. It either speaks to how jaded the officers at the detention center are, that they've experienced so much of people appearing to fake illnesses, or just a, a real disregard for the well-being of people in their custody. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, you know, not only this story, but the coverage that you and your colleagues uh, have been doing uh, at the New Haven Independent, you know, looking at several issues within the police department, starting with leadership. Can you briefly uh, tell our listeners about, you know, some of the other issues within this department? Yeah, I, th I think that the police department has had quite the controversial year, for one. Um, so as uh, as you said, uh, Carl Jacobson has been tapped by the mayor to be the next uh, permanent police chief. He's currently the assistant chief. Um, before that appointment, uh, the mayor had uh, nominated a, another assistant police chief who was kind of in limbo, an interim chief for about a year. The city's legislature, the Board of Alders, ultimately uh, rejected her um, for a, a number of reasons, allegations that Black officers were being disciplined more strictly than white officers, that the top ranks of the department had become all white for the first time since the 90s, that a militaristic approach to policing had replaced community policing. And maybe most importantly, or on top of all of that, um, the department was solving far fewer major crimes than other comparable departments. Only uh, There were only three arrests made uh, in the 25 homicides that took place in New Haven last year. Now, this year, fortunately, there have been many, many fewer homicides, only five in New Haven so far compared to 15 at this time last year. And the department has made quite a few arrests of cold cases of, of murders that, that go back a number of years. But I think the, the critique uh, of the, the, the previous uh, police administration uh, that I think can, continues to this day. It will be interesting to see uh, if Assistant J Jacobson can bring back what, what he's described a number of times, including in his confirmation hearing before the Board of Alders as a legitimacy policing, as a you know a strong trust between community and New Haven police um, to help solve a lot of those crimes and to help uh, instill a sense of trust uh, between community and uh, the police officers in the city. 
Um, before we head to break, Tom, you know, what is morale within the New Haven Police Department? Uh, one of our uh, team members at Connecticut Public uh, sending a note that there are there have been several issues uh, with particular officers in recent years. Uh, one that was suspended for an incident in a traffic stop in July of 2021. Another was fired in April after being on paid leave for a pattern of untruthfulness and mishandling cases throughout 2020. Another suspended for the mishandling of a domestic violence case. The unfortunate death of another officer in Las Vegas uh, in a car crash, a fellow New Haven officer charged with drunk driving in that case. Uh, what are you hearing from city residents about, yeah. you know, all of these instances? And I, I would add to that even some cases that did not result in any discipline or arrest. In January of 2021, an officer uh, who was kicked by a suspect responded by grabbing him by the neck, punching him three times in the head and pepper spraying. He was ultimately cleared of all wrongdoing um, by uh, the city's own internal investigation. Um, but those types of incidents have reverberated ac across the city. I think that there is um, you know, there's a, a sense of a kind of breach of, of trust, of skepticism of the police having uh, the, you know, the welfare of the public in mind. Now, of course, um, you know, as, for, you know, former uh, New Haven police chief and, and uh, kind of the next Yale police chief, Anthony Campbell, said in support of Carl Jacobson's nomination to be police chief on Monday night and said, you know, the police department recruits from the human race like like anyone else, uh, like any, any other profession, and that you have um, lots of very... Uh, uh, upsetting incidents or or people misbehaving there as elsewhere. But I do think that this pattern of also quite a few, I, I think at least seven officers over the past four or five years have been um, arrested on domestic violence charges. There's, I think, a, a real concern among uh, some members of the community that, that police officers who do misbehave are either not held accountable or there is not adequate training or this just keeps happening uh, again and again um, and culminates in something as, as tragic as what happened with Mr. Cox. You've been hearing Tom Breen, managing editor of the New Haven Independent. Tom, thank you for your time. Thank you, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to hear from the city's assistant police chief, Carl Jacobson, and New Haven's mayor, Justin Elliker. If you live in New Haven, what questions do you have for them? 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. 
you're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Why didn't they believe George Floyd when he said, I can't breathe 28 times? Why didn't they believe Eric Gardner when he said, I can't breathe 19 times? And why didn't the New Haven police officers believe Randy Cox when he said, I can't move? Civil rights attorney Ben Crump in New Haven on Tuesday, now representing the family of Richard Randy Cox. They plan to file lawsuits after Cox was injured in a police transport van and is now paralyzed from the neck down. He remains hospitalized. Joining us now on Zoom is New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker and New Haven Assistant Police Chief Carl Jacobson. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, ha- thank you. New Haven residents can also join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to start with Assistant Chief Carl Jacobson, who is the mayor's nominee to be permanent chief. The Board of Alders still need to approve that. But Assistant Chief Jacobson, what was your reaction when you saw these videos? Well, I was deeply disturbed, um, um, very hurt by the actions of the officers. Um, This is not the way we should treat people. We're here to help people, to keep people safe, especially people in our custody. And um, just very disturbed, very disturbed. Were you angry? I found myself when I watched this video, really angry that people are treated this way, especially by public servants. Absolutely. I mean, I've been a police officer for over 24 years, and I take a lot of pride in the job that we do here in New Haven. And, um, you know, yes, very angry and um, uh, but also passionate about making change and making sure this doesn't happen again. And if I could just take one second to say that um, the New Haven Police Department is praying for the Cox family and Randy Cox for a speedy recovery. Um, This is a very devastating thing. Um, to our community, to our police department, and we want to do everything we can to change this. Mm. When we think about uh, your police department, uh, the officers uh, that you know that you've worked with uh, for many years, when I see this video and now we know that five officers are on paid administrative leave, does it speak to the fact that because protocols were not followed multiple times, just watching these videos, that training is an issue within your department? Well, there's two issues. There's training and complacency. And I think training um, we need to do more of. We always need to do more. of. We always talk about that. Um, But also leadership Strong leadership um, will overcome complacency. Um, we've been through some influx over the last few years. And, and just go back to 2007 when I came here, we've had nine different chiefs. Um, and that, com- that change at the top constantly leads to complacency. And we need to have strong leadership, 
for a long period of time. And, um, you know, we have had some issues, but the overall majority of officers are deeply committed to the community and they go out every day doing a very difficult job to protect the community. Um, and those officers are upset and mad as well. You mentioned complacency, but also the, just the lack of compassion that was shown to this man who communicated more than once that he was hurt, that he couldn't move, that he thought his neck was broken. I wanted to quote one of the officers at the detention facility when he said at that point after being dragged off the van and put in a wheelchair that he thought that his neck was broken. And the officer said, you didn't crack it. You just drank too much. How do you respond when you hear your officers say something like that? Um, you know, you're saying it again, and I'm disturbed and angry again. And, um, you know, we have to respond swiftly. Um, that's why we turned it over to the Connecticut State Police on the criminal side. Um, and we will respond swiftly in the internal affairs investigation. But it is a process, and we have to let the process take time. Um, but based on the videos, yeah, we're, we're extremely angry about this. And we want to make sure that this never happens again. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. You're hearing New Haven Assistant Police Chief Carl Jacobson. He is the mayor's nominee to be permanent chief as we talk about this very disturbing story out of New Haven, a a city man uh, now hospitalized. uh, His family says uh, almost entirely paralyzed after being injured after an arrest in mid-June. New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker is with us. How do you respond to what your assistant police chief shared in terms of the complacency and the training that's needed after this disturbing story. Yeah, I, I think that what happened to uh, Mr. Cox was just awful and completely unacceptable. Uh, it clearly falls short of the high standards that we have in the New Haven uh, Police Department and the values of our city, and uh, it's not going to be tolerated. Uh, it, we worked very hard and continue to work very hard to respond quickly and decisively and openly about uh, this incident. We you know, put five officers on leave, alerted the public within 24 hours of the incident, released uh, videos that encompass the entire uh, length of the incident within 40 hours, 48 hours of the incident. And the, there's an ongoing investigation both by the state police and uh, an internal affairs investigation has been open. Um, there's been a lot of questions about culture in the police department. I think that these are uh, really important questions to have. In my view, having watched the, the videos many times, I don't I don't think from what I have seen that there is a culture of police brutality in the New Haven Police Department, but you know, seeing the five officers that were involved in the incident, there was a uh, an extreme callousness. And I also think that uh, it's important for us to f- foster a culture of intervention of officers having the tools and the support that they need to stop other officers when they have questions about following procedure. Are we doing the right thing? Are we treating someone correctly? Uh, We're uh, working to implement more training that uh, is in this uh, vein of duty to intervene. I think we we think of duty to intervene after George Floyd's murder um, duty intervene also means when officers may be doing something that uh, is uh, not following protocol or not treating someone with ultimate respect, that uh, uh, other officers have the tools that they need to ensure that we're providing the best service for uh, New Haven residents, the most compassionate service. 
uh, no matter no matter what someone did, they went in police custody deserved to be treated safely and respectfully. And uh, in my my strong view, that was not done here. You mentioned that uh, you don't believe this is a, a culture that of pro- police brutality, but when you see the way these officers interact with this man. You know, how does this happen that somebody can be communicating with the officers that there's something wrong and he is ignored and mocked at one point? How does that happen? If it's not a culture of police brutality, what is it, Mayor Elliker? Yeah, I think that we've all been asking ourselves this question, too, watching these videos. How could these officers have done this? And uh, the officers uh, had an attitude of mistrust of the individual despite um uh, Mr. Cox asking for help, and you know, I, I, you know, I think of we've talked with uh, Mr. Cox's mom a number of times. I can't imagine what she is going through. Uh, I can't. Mr. Cox's life has changed forever. We want to make sure that this never ever happens again, and uh, are committed to ensuring that, that it does not. Uh, Assistant Chief uh, Carl Jacobson is uh, still with us. When we look at the officers at the detention facility, they're also interacting with uh, Mr. Cox. Um, Is there an issue with training there? What's being done to address these specific concerns, including if someone is injured, how to respond, how to wait for medical personnel to get there? Yeah, that's a basic thing that we are trained in. And we're looking at all our policies and procedures, and we're going to double down on that, where we um, have a set of questions that need to be asked while on body camera and answered. And if any of those answers are yes, you stop everything you're doing, and you make sure they're seen by medical attention prior to anything else being done. And um, although uh, medical attention was called, they didn't stop what they were doing, obviously. And um, that needs to be done. And another thing the mayor had said, I just want to elaborate on, we have trainers in the ABLE program and the ICAP program, which talk about duty to intervene. And there needs to be, our leadership needs to push down to all our officers that it's all right to question and say, hey, this doesn't look right. Hey, why are we doing this? And just one of those officers saying something like that would have stopped the whole process and they would have um, gotten him medical attention. And we need to do that. And we need to um, also, another thing we're going to look into doing is an early warning system in a, internal affairs. And if we have officers with rudeness complaints, if we don't take care of that now in the past, we would take care of it with discipline. What, what I'm proposing is we take care of it with mentorship and we pair officers up with officers that are really good at the job and, and treat people above and beyond. And So officers, we don't just discipline and move on, discipline and move on. We need to identify problems, fix them, have mentorship. And if they're not fixing them, then we need to get rid of these officers. Um, I said it the other night at the NAACP meeting. If officers treat people the way treated Mr. Cox, um, we don't want them to be police officers. Mm. You'd mentioned that this is basic training that was not followed. And so I wanted to get back to that, because if it's basic training that all police officers get and it was not followed by at least five of these officers that interacted with Mr. Cox, what is going on, uh, Assistant Chief Jacobson? Well, um, like I said, we've we've had our problems, um, but most of our cops are committed to the safety and the well-being of the community. Um, We just have to make it clear 
And, and I want to fall back on something I've been talking about um, since the mayor nominated me to legitimacy. And the first uh, pillar of legitimacy is give everyone a voice. If Mr. Cox was given a voice, uh, you know, the, 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 the officer Diaz did call for rescue, but he should have stopped. And if he was given a voice and treated with dignity, we wouldn't be here talking about this today. So and those are the first two pillars. So we really need to dig deep as an agency and work hard as an agency and show leadership and make some changes and just let it be known. We're not going to tolerate this. And I think we have um, quickly and um, that's going to lead to better results. Um Mayor Elliker had mentioned the family of Richard Randy Cox. I wanted to play this audio that was gathered by Connecticut Public's Kay Perkins. This is Latoya Boomer, who's a sister of Mr. Cox, speaking the other day. Seeing those videos, I couldn't watch. I started watching the videos, and the treatment of him was a disgrace. Where's the first aid training? Where's the... Uh, where's the on-the-job training? Where's the accountability? I want to know where's the person that sees what's going on and says, maybe he's not joking. Maybe he's not drunk. Maybe he is in distress. He's laying on the floor saying, I think my neck is broke. I can't move. Help. I can't move. I think my neck is broken. I wanted to play that because that is the relative of Richard Randy Cox. And when we hear you say, Assistant Police Chief Jacobson, you know, that you need to build uh, trust uh, within uh, not only the department, but also how the community responds and, and thinks of its department, to know that, again, over and over, they ignored somebody who was injured that needed help. I mean, how do you build that from the ground up? It sounds like there's something broken here. Well, I think we have a lot of trust with the community um, and we worked very hard after the George Floyd murder to build that trust and get back to a um, time when, you know, even Tom Breen said it, we're starting to solve more homicides. We're starting to get more community collaboration. Um, and this is a definite setback. So we have to put our hand out to the community, accept that what happened is wrong and that we're going to fix it. Um, and it's almost like starting over and give everyone a voice, treatment with dig dignity. The other um, pillars are neutrality and decision-making and building trust. And we just got to start over with some of the, a large part of the community. And, and I understand, and the officers understand why people are upset with us. If I may also respond, Lucy, mm -hmm. uh, and I said this to Mr. Cox's family at the NAACP, a gathering the other night. Uh, Mr. Cox is a New Haven resident and I'm the mayor of the whole city. I'm the mayor of Mr. Cox. Uh, so I come to this as a mayor, but I also come to this as a dad of, of two kids. And I, I can't imagine what it must be like for the family seeing that happen. I'd be angry and I'd want accountability. And part of the work that, uh, and, and I deeply believe the New Haven Police Department has worked very, very hard to uh, build trust in the community. Part of building trust is also how we respond to this incident. And we uh, and, uh, absolutely need to respond in a way that is decisive, that is open, 
and then ensures accountability. And uh, we've been working very hard to do that. Uh, this is only the beginning of responding to this incident, but uh, 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 that trust is going to be built because we uh, are committed to doing this the right way and responding in the right way. Uh, Mayor, when we we talk about uh, the police department and earlier, both of you mentioned also the importance of training and being able to speak out when they see something happening that's wrong. But what is the structure of the New Haven Police Department? Is there a structure now that would discourage people who uh, may be at a lower rank from pushing back on someone who is their supervisor? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely not. There's no discouragement. There's no, you wouldn't be disciplined to say that. Um, we actually um, train people to to say that. You know, we recently are training a new academy that will be coming out on July 6th. And they've had extensive training in ABLE and ICAT to actually go about saying, no, this isn't right. We need to stop. Um, and, and think about that. Of those five officers, if one person had done that, we would not be sitting here today. We would not be talking about rebuilding the trust that we were building. Like we were moving in the right direction. We have lower amount of homicides in any large city in Connecticut by by tenfold. Um, and that's because we were building trust again. And, and um, we have to start over. Why were the police department still using these vans that don't have seat belts? When we think about how easy it is for any of us to, when we enter a car, if there's an abrupt stop or if there's an accident, to be thrown forward. That's why we wear seat belts. Why is that same uh, not given to those who are arrested and in these vehicles being transported, Assistant Chief Jacobson? Um, so back after the 2015 incident in Baltimore, we redid our policies in 2016 and we added the loops of holding on um, and signs in the van to say, hold on to the loops. Um, at that time, that's what the leadership at the time came up with. Um, the post even requires you, doesn't require you to have seatbelts. They consider prisoner vans like school buses. Like why doesn't school buses have seatbelts? Um, but clearly it wasn't the right decision at that time. And we've taken those vans off the road and we've added seat belts and we're going to do everything possible for this to never happen again. Um, at the time back in 2016, that was the policy change. These loops were added. Uh, when we purchased a new van recently, it did come with seat belts. So, um, you know, it wasn't the right decision, obviously, and we're going to do everything possible to uh, right the wrong. Mayor, were you surprised that these vehicles were still being used? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been mayor for two and a half years, and um, this incident brought to my attention that two out of three of the, the uh, transport vans that we use do not have seatbelts. And uh, while it is not required by the state, uh, we uh, clearly um, uh, have we will respond, and we're taking, as the assistant chief said, the vans off the road, our cruisers all have seatbelts, and officers are required to uh um, securely buckle people in. And um, uh, once we we're working to update our standard operating procedures, and uh, clearly that will be a, a part of our policy moving forward. That's New Haven Mayor Justin Elliker here on Where We Live. Thank you for your time, Mayor. Thank you. Also with us, New Haven Assistant Police Chief Carl Jacobson. He is the mayor's nominee to be permanent chief. We thank you for your time.
Thank you very much. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Miranda rights and how that could impact policing in the future. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, there's a lot of U.S. Supreme Court news to dissect in recent days. And with our focus on policing earlier in the show, we wanted to talk about a ruling that could impact Miranda rights protections in the future. With more joining us on Zoom is George Camacho, Policing Law and Policy Director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. George, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. Most of us know what Miranda rights are, but briefly explain them and the case before the Supreme Court. Sure. So Miranda rights are those things that you always hear uttered in every TV cop procedural uh, show ever made. Uh, Whenever they're arresting a suspect, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford one, one will be provided to you by the court. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. These these warnings were first prescribed by the Supreme Court in 1966 in a case known as Miranda versus Arizona, um, and which is why they're known today as Miranda warnings. In that case, uh, the court examined the question of uh, coercion and voluntariness during police uh, custodial interrogations and determined that in order to protect people from what they believed was the inherently coercive nature of police interrogations, that prior to interrogating anyone who was in custody, police officers would have to inform the subject of the interrogation of these rights, of the right to remain silent, of the right to an attorney, et cetera. Uh, and that only if they, uh, only if the person was informed of these rights could the court or any other court presume that their subsequent statement uh, was made knowingly and voluntarily. Um, fast forward to this year, there was a case, uh, Vega versus Tico, um, in which the question before the court was whether or not someone who had made incriminating statements could sue the police officer who interrogated them in federal court under a federal law known as Section 1983 if that officer had failed to read them Uh, read him his Miranda rights before the interrogation. Section 1983 requires uh, that there be some kind of deprivation of a civil right rooted either in the Constitution, a constitutional right, or in a law, in a federal law. So the question before the court was, well, is the requirement under Miranda to read these warnings prior to interrogating someone, is that either a constitutional uh, right for purposes of 1983, or a legal right made under federal law. 
the court held no, that it's neither a constitutional right, nor a legal right, nor a statutory right, uh, and that therefore you could not sue someone under this uh, under this, this section of federal law uh, in court if they failed you to read your rights. Mm-hmm. The repercussions of this decision are that uh, one of the most significant causes of action for pursuing civil rights claims against uh, officers in, in federal court has now been entirely foreclosed for situations where people make self-incriminating statements uh, after not having been read their Miranda rights. Given that that ruling, so people are left with few, if any, options to seek relief? It really depends. Um, right now, what this leaves you with primarily is still the core holding in Miranda, which is that any self-incriminating statement made uh, that that uh, was made without the benefit of, of this advanced warning of, of your rights um, would be suppressed at trial and could not be used in a criminal trial against against that individual. However, that holding has kind of been slowly chipped away over the years, and there are now a series of exceptions to that to that ruling. Um, and now, you know, with with this new decision under Vega, the possibility of seeking a civil remedy, including damages or you know, suing for money or some other type of relief under 1983, um, is now no longer available. If there isn't a state law analog to Miranda or a state law analog to Section 1983, where you could you know sue under that law, then this really leaves people with very few options aside from seeking the exclusion of evidence at a criminal trial, but that doesn't help you if you were never criminally prosecuted for the offense that you were interrogated about. What about a longer impact? You know, could this impact arrests and police business when they interrogate a subject? Could we see law enforcement stop reading Miranda rights or is that uh, jumping ahead too much? It, it, I think you could see some change in police behavior. Now, again, <clears throat> the exclusionary rule still still applies right so that could serve as a deterrent um, uh, or, or an incentive to read these warnings in spite of, of the fact that civil liability is greatly reduced now um, but you still may have uh, police officers who who perhaps you know will feel less obligated to read these rights knowing that civil liability is is much less likely again especially if the prospect of a criminal prosecution just isn't on the horizon for the individual but they still want to gain information from someone who they're interrogating uh, for purposes of some other kind of investigation you're hearing george camacho here on where we live policing law and policy director of the justice collaboratory at yale law school as we talk about the SCOTUS ruling related to Miranda. Now, I understand police currently are able to lie when interrogating witnesses. So how does that connect back to Miranda rights, George? Well, so the, the, yes, you're right. Uh, the, the Supreme Court has held that you can use subterfuge, right? Um, you can lie, you can, you can misdirect um, you can, you know, kind of imply things that, that perhaps are less than the truth during an interrogation in order to elicit a statement, provided that the interrogation is otherwise uh, uh, not coercive. And that includes, you know, reading Miranda rights, re- reading Miranda warnings in advance of the interrogation. Um, <clears throat> what this does is that this 
this ruling to the extent again that that it that it removes um, at least some component of incentive for reading these these uh, warnings in advance, it makes the the impact of the subterfuge more powerful potentially, um, especially again if if the deterrent of exclusion of evidence at uh, at trial isn't um, isn't enough of a motivating factor for for police officers. We just have a couple of minutes left, but you anticipate could there be more cases headed to the SCOTUS related to Miranda warnings? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court uh, is currently composed of, of at least six justices who clearly view Miranda skeptically. Uh, and even though this case, Vega presented, again, the relatively narrow question of whether there was civil liability under, uh, under this federal law, uh, the next Miranda case, whatever that may be, could present to the court the square question of whether the exclusionary rule should apply. Um, and you have you have six justices who who you know have made it clear that Miranda is not a constitutional right, uh, that its prescriptions are not constitutionally uh, rooted in the way that that other constitutional rights are, uh, and that really Miranda is a creation of the court, which basically means that uh, as much as the court may have been free to create it, it may also be free to undo it. Briefly for our listeners, you know, what should they be considering as they hear this and think about uh, Miranda rights? How to better educate individuals about these rights, George? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are two main uh, things that can and should be done. Uh, education is absolutely a component of it. And, and, and you know, people now, you know, I think have some modicum of understanding of what their rights may be. Although, uh, again, once you're in the situation of being interrogated, uh, you know, whether or not you can kind of uh, objectively sit back and, and assess your rights, um, given the inherently coercive nature of, of many police interrogations is, I think, I think uh, a legitimate question to ask. Um, but really, what can be done and should be done is to kind of minimize reliance on the Supreme Court to both uh, establish and recognize and to reaffirm these kinds of prescriptions and these kinds of rights. Uh, because even if Miranda kind of goes away, even if the court undoes it, um, that doesn't mean that states and local governments and even the federal government can't require the same thing under law, under policy. Um, and so, you know, Miranda, even if even if the court views its constitutional origins with skepticism, doesn't mean that Miranda itself is not good policy to have. In fact, I think there are many, many reasons for police departments to uh, continue to inform people of their rights, even in the event that the Supreme Court reverses Miranda. Uh, But the only way to guarantee that that happens is to pass laws to that effect. That's George Camacho, Policing Law and Policy Director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. Thank you for your time, George. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow. 